This is Resonance 104.4 FM, flipping marvellous. How you doing? I'm Nick Hedigan, and it's time for another slice of Literary London, which where we talk about things kind of literary and London-ish. And uh, as an extra bonus, because we are talking very much about literature and London this time, as an extra bonus as well, if you're listening in stereo, you can probably see we're in vision. And we're in vision because I am face to face with the glory, the, the man, the legend, the thing that is Guy Masterson. So hello, Guy. Hey, hello, hello, Nick. How are you, man? Oh, brilliant. Lovely to see you, mate. I mean, you know, full disclosure, we are old mates. We, we actually met, I was trying to think about it the other day. We met at an event for Dylan Thomas that with Rhys Jones had arranged. Do you remember that? That was the... Uh, we did, time. yes. I think you came to see, I did a I did a poetry reading of, um, uh, not reading, a recital of Dylan Thomas's short stories and poems uh, for the Fitzrovia Festival, Dylan Thomas Festival, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was called. And then, uh, and and Griffiths Jones was um, doing something. I can't remember where it was, but somewhere in London. Well, it's Fitzrovia, wasn't it? But um, Yeah, he, he was supposed to be organising it, but he didn't really. <laughs> It was kind of his idea. He's, I think he's written a book called How Welsh Are You? I seem to remember spending quite a lot of time in his kitchen in Fitzroy Square when he lived there. But that was where we first met. And of course, we've got to talk about your current project, which is very exciting and completely London. Um, well, it's international, really. But um, yeah, because uh, we're talking about the, the the Animal Farm by George Orwell that you're you're presenting. But of course, we should also talk if you are watching this in vision on YouTube or on BohemianBritain.com, you will see over my right shoulder is a picture of our guy. <laughs> because uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the unfogged version of Christmas Carol. <laughs> yes, indeed. So you may well have you may know as well, of course, if you're a regular that uh, that I adapted a version of a Christmas Carol. Uh, and uh, uh, and Guy came in and did a reading. We did it at the lovely Fitzroy, Fitzroy Chapel. Uh, mm, and, beautiful uh, it was. It was glorious. It, ca it was a candlelit reading with artificial candles, but you would never have known. And um, uh, it was glorious, and I fell in love with it. And the irony of that was that I had never, I admitted to you that I'd never read Christmas Carol or even seen it uh, before, and I had avoided the Muppets version and everything. I'd seen excerpts, you know, you know, um, the Alistair Sim version and things like that, but I, I don't know why, but I just avoided it. And um, and uh, I think a, a dear friend of mine said that, uh, had, having studied it, said that he didn't like it because it was twee and um, and parochial and all of that kind of thing. And so I I kind of ignored it. And um, and then you invited me to do that reading. I think someone wasn't able to do the reading for you, and you asked me if I would do it and you know what an opportunity to to read it and and enjoy it and uh, I I fell in love with it that night and I said to you I think this would make a great solo play would you let me have a go and I certainly and, did and you certainly and, did <laughs> and, I, and you can direct it I said <laughs> I, I, I shall direct you as well I must apologize now and I do apologize generally for, for sort of making you dance so much uh, you have to say yeah. it's a one-person <laughs> show, but he, guy does a lot of physical, a lot of dancing in there. Uh, him and that coat get on very well. Uh, but that's me teasing a Christmas Carol. Well, I think the coat became the magical thing when you when you, you introduced the coat into the rehearsal room. I realised the potential of of everything that it could do in terms of become other characters and become the ghost and uh, and, and all of the, all of those things. And of course, my way of working is that I strip everything away, so so that everything that you see in the play is seen in your head. 
And so I can describe rooms and fires and uh, all this kind of stuff. And, um, and, and it's not dictated by what you see behind you. There's nothing behind me. Um, and, and, and so it's a black space. And so it works in your imagination and the less there is on stage, the less, the less your, your, your own imagination is, is interfered with. So I call it, or it was, it was actually written by I think an Indian um, uh, critique, uh, art critique, in 1996, that I form a contract of imagination with the audience, which is a, a lovely thing to sort of interpret the, the way of working. So I strip everything I do down to the barest minimum, and anything that's on the stage has great meaning and needs to have more meaning. So whenever I use it, it. Um, it has a real resonance. Uh, so in Undermilk Wood, for example, it's the pajamas that I wear and the dark glasses for Captain Cat uh, and a chair and a particular wooden chair. It's a Welsh wooden chair that was in my grandmother's uh, uh, kitchen. And in Animal Farm, it's a hay bale. And uh, as a costume, it's a boiler suit, which in fact you can see behind you. Oh, well, that yes, way. Yes, <laughs> That's the boiler suit. Um, and uh, a bowler hat and a whip. And uh, in um, uh, in a Christmas Carol, it is the coat and the chair, and that's it. Yeah, and it works very well. I mean, and you would have seen that coat if you saw him with the Fifth Line of England at Stratford upon Avon. Not anymore, mate. You, you'll have to fight me to get that coat back. <laughs> yeah, you you ironed it though. That's the difference. I think it's, it's been washed since you had it. But yes, yeah, so that's recycling sets. That that that, make, that makes it mine. Oh, <laughs> it. It. yeah. I guess there is that. Yeah. Yes, 1992. I'd like to thank the next directory for that. No, we're not sponsored by them at all. But yes, it's very good. Uh, I, I, I bought it, I bought it as, as a fashion accessory, and of course, it's not really ever done that. But it's it's travelled the world. It's travelled more than I have. It has I'm, indeed, and it's been called shabby so many times. But it's not shabby. <laughs> oh, certainly not. Not since you washed it and ironed it. Anyway, um, <laughs> we must talk about Guy Masterson as a kind of a a product, if you don't mind me using that term, and how it how you came to be doing this. Because in a sense, you've made a fantastic living, a career out of presenting uh, one-person shows. And, I mean, we're going to talk a bit about the writing as well, because we get a lot of writers listen to uh, yeah. obviously, and because you've written as well. Um, and, of course, directed, perhaps most notably recently, uh, Ian's production of a, uh, sorry, a script of A Shark, a Shark is Broken, which uh, ran both at Edinburgh, or started at Edinburgh, and then went to the West mm -hmm. End and and then to to, to Broadway. Yeah. Excuse me. How do you find, as an artist, I mean, what I say, we are going to talk about Animal Farm because that's the current show. That's what you're about to do in a few hours' time. Um, we'll talk about Animal Farm specifically, but how does the kind of the whole mix of being generally a creative fit with you? And, and how did it all start? I mean, I kind of do know this a little bit, but I think mm. we were talking about it over whiskey at five o'clock one night in a theatre in the Midlands. Um, so just tell us how you kind of have this career, and it certainly is a career, or be varied, mm. not going. Well, I think it started because, uh, you know, it's a needs must moment. Um, I was a professional actor in Hollywood uh, for uh, about four years. And then I was advised by my then agent to return to England. I was uh, and um, I didn't and, and join the RSC. That was that was his instruction. Join the RSC or the National and you'll come back out here in 10 years and you'll be a big star. And um, 
So I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can do that. But I, I had no classical training, so I didn't know whether, whether, whether that could be possible. So I auditioned on a whim for Lambda and was offered a place. Uh, it was a one-year um, diploma course, uh, postgraduate. So I sold everything I had in America and went back and did that course and, and, and did my classical training. And that course is so intense. It's, it's effectively the three-year course squeezed into one so there's a lot of work going on for one year and uh but all the training the necessary classical training is in there and having been a professional it wasn't like i was learning to act or do anything like that it was more about honing your skills and really sort of how to apply them but then of course i came out of lambda uh and i was completely unknown nobody cared what i'd done in america at the time um and so i had to do something and i remembered somewhere in the back of my mind someone said you know um, if you're ever out of work, do a one-person play. And that was the kind of new vogue for out-of-work actors. And, uh, you know, I had been, an, a, I wouldn't say an entrepreneur per se, but I, uh, certainly someone who wouldn't take lying down. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I found a one-person play by Peter Flannery, who wrote Singer and Our Friends in the North. And uh, I read it through and it was um, it was dated because of the reference within it. So I called him and I said, look, do you mind if I update this to have modern references that everybody's going to recognize? And he said, go for it, go for it. So I did that and I fell in love with the genre. I fell in love with the direct contact with the audience and it changed my life. It changed my life as a performer because no longer was I performing for me to be seen and showcase my talent in the hope that someone was going to hire me? Uh, suddenly I had a, a much bigger reason. It was the power of the play itself and what it was saying and the way it was communicating to the audience. And in this particular case, it was a play about being a goalkeeper and the loneliness and the difference between the goalkeeper and the outfield players. And I dubbed it the loneliness of the long distance goalkeeper. And I was actually talking very, very seriously to the outcasts uh, of, of the young of the group of young those who don't fit in for some reason or do something different and are always castigated and they're accepted whilst they're useful i.e they can play in goal and but the moment the game's over they are sort of out and uh friendless and disconnected and it i wouldn't say that i i mean i i I do remember being bullied at school very badly. One, because I was Welsh in a very English school. And, and, and two, because I had an Italian name. So in those days, I was fair game. Uh, and I had to deal with that. Um, but it, it's much the same thing. You know, you, you feel out. You feel out of the group, unpopular. And it's very hurtful. Um, so this play I found was, was talking to those kids. And then I started lecturing around this whilst I was performing. And I fell in love with all of that. I fell in love with doing the performance for young people and I fell in love with talking to them in a class environment and really sort of hitting home, you know, that it's okay to be different. It's okay to, 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 to stand up for yourself. It's okay to have convictions and not just go along with the group. But then, so, but, but, but as an artist, I fell in love with the, um, the genre and, uh, and, and ironically, I did get cast in a big West End production of Cyrano de Bergerac with Robert Lindsay at the Royal uh, Theatre Royal Haymarket, and I was in that for nine months. And I have to say, it was both the most wonderful experience of my life up to date because it was a big West End show. But doing eight shows a week with the same people, who some of whom got really bored of it and were doing all kinds of things to make themselves uh, enjoy it more, and it, you know, I, it, it became very tedious. And uh, and I couldn't wait for it to end. 
Um, and it wasn't about the wage because the West End wage for me at that time was was very good. Uh, it, it wasn't about the wage. It was about, you know, what I was doing on stage and what was the meaning of my job, my life. And so I resolved then to do something which meant a lot to me, which was attempt Undermilk Wood as a solo performance. And I'd fallen in love with Undermilk Wood because my famous uncle, who I know you're going to talk about in a second, um, was Richard Burton. And, um, and he'd introduced me to it because he loved it. And I was so taken by his passion for this writer that I, I, I fell in love with it. So I, I thought, uh, and of course, we, we studied it a, a little bit at Lambda. Uh, we did a fundraiser. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I, um, I loved it. So I resolved to do the first ever solo performance of Under Milk Wood ever attempted. And of course, it was an experiment in what I call physical performance storytelling, which was embodying all the characters uh, without anything on the stage and do it word perfectly as word perfectly as I could without any uh, alterations or uh, additions to the text. And that was my, that was my project. I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea how an audience would take it or if it could work as it turned out, it worked and I honed it and then took it to the Edinburgh festival or was invited to the Edinburgh festival, actually to the assembly rooms in 1994. And uh, it hit and suddenly the the international uh, um world opened up and and I was invited to New Zealand and to do this performance and then as you would have it just as I'm embarking on this wonderful success if you like um I got a call saying you can no longer perform under Milkwood because the National Theatre have purchased um uh, all rights it's called uh, what's it called not universal rights it's it called uh, uh, um exclusive rights so I suddenly everything I had to cancel so I had to come up with a new idea and uh, ironically it was my girlfriend at the time uh, who said look why don't you do Animal Farm and I went that is a really good idea hadn't entered my head since I'd studied it when I was 14 but then I thought oh god got the book 90 pages long read it in a couple of hours thought yes i can adapt this in the same style as under Wood with the central narrator and play the same thing with branching off into the different characters all i have to do is animate the characters uh, and change a lot of the narrative into dialogue so rather than telling us what's happening i am playing the scenes as all the animals just like under Wood. and the remarkable thing about under Wood is it's all done in the present tense so we are watching those characters live their lives. So I changed Animal Farm from the past tense into the present tense. And now we watch those animals go through those experiences. So it becomes a very animated live piece of theater. It's still a storytelling, but you go from the narrator who sets the scene into the scene, you experience the emotion of the scene, and then you move through the story. And of course, at the end of it, you're as devastated as the animals are. So anyway, Animal Farm was the second piece of classic British literature that I had in the repertoire. And uh, I was able to, you know, expand my horizons, go around the world with that. And I did it a thousand times. And, and then of course, I got very tired, physically tired, because um, it's very, very physical. It's two hours of intense physical uh, theater. And I, I decided to um, 
uh, offer it to a younger a younger person to do. I was, I think, 40, 41 by the time I I stopped performing it and um, and gave it to a young actor actress called Lizzie Wood, and uh, and she did a brilliant job taking it around schools and she had a different connection with the audience, uh, the younger audience, because she was much, much younger than I was and very physical and um, ballet trained ballet dancer. And uh, it added a whole new dimension to it. Yeah. And a few years later, we passed. Yeah. I can imagine doing, I mean, I've I've performed a couple of, I'm not an actor, but I've done a couple of one man shows, one person shows myself. And then actually used all, as you know, as you know very well, because you helped us produce them in Edinburgh, Edward Fifth Line of England and Hamlet, which is up there somewhere. And yeah. um, but so the and there is a remarkable connection with 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 an audience as a, as a solo performer, which perhaps you don't get as an ensemble member. Um, I'm talking to Guy Masterson. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Resonance 104.4 FM. As I say, flipping marvellous. London's art station. It's literally London. We're also, don't forget, on bohemianbritain.com. And if you're listening to this and want to see how beautiful both Guy and I are, am, are, then have a look at bohemianbritain.com um, or, or of course you can go on YouTube YouTube, uh, we're, we're going on YouTube, we're everywhere oh, all over the place, not quite as all over the place as Guy Masterson has been for these last 12 months or so so um, you're actually, as we speak a lot of people I know will listen to this uh, over the over the years sometimes but currently as we stand uh, at, at the end of January uh, 2024, you're performing uh, the lovely Wilton's Music Hall. Uh, just tell us a bit about yeah. that. You've got the you've got the overalls behind you as well, and it's and oh it's, yes, no, yeah. no. <laughs> where is it? That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, um, I'm performing Animal Farm here at w- the stunning Wilton's Music Hall. It's an, old, I did it's, an old, it's an old music hall, isn't it? I mean, a it is. It is. In fact, it's the oldest working music hall in the world. Uh, it went dark for many, many years, I think after the war, uh, seemed to be locked up and dusty and someone opened it up thinking that they were going to be able to develop the building and then found this beautiful music hall. A stop was put on all development and um, instead of developing it, it was protected and um, and they've managed to repurpose it for live entertainment, which is fantastic. And it is such a beautiful old distressed building but it it does what it does best it provides a variety of everything from musicals christmas shows uh, proper variety shows and of course theater and for me um the bareness of it you know yeah uh, minimal it, minimal kind of feeling of it yeah absolutely it still gives some grandeur and it's got great acoustic it's it's a lovely place to do this show it poses its problems because it's got two levels and you're effectively splitting the stage into two two levels and you have to light both areas. And then I have to remember what level I'm supposed to be on during the show. Oh, I'm going to be up there or down there. Sometimes I get it wrong and I find myself in darkness and I have to <laughs> go upstairs. And, of course, I have to move as an animal, so I'm scuttling around. Um, Make sure you yeah, find- that's what I'm doing. And I'm there, I'm here until uh, Saturday night. So just four performances left. But I do have one next week uh, at the Arts Depot on the 31st of January. Uh, And that's my last performance in London for the foreseeable future of Animal Farm. I will be performing at Bath Theatre Royal May 31st and uh, June 1st. 
And of course, uh, I mean, well, we'll we'll talk again because Christmas Carol's about to start coming around, isn't it? You've already that's already yeah. booking for next Christmas. It is. Uh, it is indeed. And, and what's your uh, like? How do you feel about George Orwell? I mean, what how, what do you think of him as a writer, Orwell? Truly, truly remarkable. The more I read, the more I repeat read some of his work, you realise how prescient he was. Uh, he saw it all. He foresaw it all. And uh, and even though in Animal Farm it's a, it's an allegory which is kind of strictly uh, linked to uh, the events of the Russian Revolution and Stalin's abuse of the ideals of communism, um, he was effectively writing it to let the idealistic left know that what they believed in, i.e., communism as an ideal, was being abused. And of course, they were they were refusing to accept that Stalin was. Um, doing what he was doing was we all know now he's a mass murderer uh, and was a totalitarian uh, but Orwell had written this allegory just before he died and um, and as a way of uh, uh, of notifying that the great ideal of the social democratic revolution um, was being abused and of course no one believed him and in, in, indeed Disney purchased, or the CIA, I don't know whether it's CIA, purchased the rights to Animal Farm and put out a put out a cartoon version of it with Disney, which changed the ending of, of Animal Farm, which broke Sonia Orwell's heart because it changed the entire message. It was saying, communism doesn't work and we must rise up and fight against it, rather than what Lenin's idea was, which was a social democratic revolution where everybody has a chance and it's rather than focusing all profit into a, the hands of a few privileged people, um, which is effectively where, you, you know, liberal democracy is intended to be. Um, so for us living in a modern liberal democracy, uh, it points out the hypocrisy of uh, topical politicians and um and uh, current politicians and the lies that they tell and this and the and 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 the speak and the and the uh, and, the, and the alternative facts that they pump out all over the place and um i kind of uh, i i kind of drop these in throughout the play in very clever places so they don't seem forced in um but they seem to work with the narrative and it reminds the audience that animal farm is just as topical today as it was yeah. 75 years ago it's very interesting you know, that you know everyone talks about the pen being mighty by the sword, but talking about Christmas Carol as well. I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely, arguably changed society. Charles Dickens did through his writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't learn that until I did that reading. And um, it, whenever I feel it, I, I I feel the topicality and and the weight of of uh, responsibility when I tell that story. Um, and uh, it, it has exactly the, the the qualities that I look for in in my work, um, uh, you know. And and so that's what draws me to to works like that. And I guess they're great for a reason, and that's one of them. So you've been you've been performing show. I won't say exactly how long, but it's it's been a while now. Um, uh, Animal Farm is uh, is currently at Wilton's Music Hall, and it's going to be twenty nine years old today. Hey, Dale, good. Thank you for telling me that. I was going to say, how long has it been around for? 29 years. The world wow. premiere was at the Traverse Theatre on Burns Night in 1995. Wow. And it's 25th of January today, Burns Night. And it also happens to be my 25th wedding anniversary. 
I was going to mention that, but I wasn't sure if I should. Congratulations. I mean, I obviously, as, a, as, as we've already explained, I know I know you very well now, and I, I consider you to be a good friend. Uh, I also love your family as well, and your your girls are fantastic. <laughs> I won't embarrass Lulu by telling she told me how I could get my eyebrow. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but so uh, it, it's, and I, I kind of like the fact, uh, I mean, well, talking to family, we'll have to mention, of course, Uncle Richard, because I, I do believe yeah. in terms of of, uh, of writing, Richard Burton was quite uh, uh, an influence. And also, because you were in America for a while, but you can, you identify as Welsh, don't you? And you are Welsh. Yes, that's 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 where... I mean, I was born brought up in a, a, almost a Welsh commune, if you like, uh, in North London. Um, I was supposed to be born in Wales, uh, but I came out five weeks early, apparently, during a heat wave. Um, <laughs> there was, my mother said there was a party and... Far be it for me to miss a party. Um, so I was born in in Hampstead, England, and then um, spent the first three years of my life mainly in Wales. Whilst uh, my father was rebuilt, trying to rebuild a house for us, and um, then came down to, to London. Uh, and I think you know he was an Italian American. My mother was Welsh. My grandparents lived in the house. My aunt was Welsh. She lived in and there was a lot of Welsh being spoken and you, you know so I I can oh I consider myself Welsh yeah I mean I I, we, I mean I'm from Birmingham originally and Wales was our coastline basically in Birmingham and uh we used to yeah. we used to go there every single year for holidays of children and granddad had caravans and there and it, it's a glorious place and we st I mean I still do spend quite a lot of time in Wales it's a glorious place and um, and what was the what was the Richard Burton connection well, he was my grandmother's second youngest brother. And when their mother died, um, she, my grandmother was just married and I think not quite pregnant. Yeah, maybe pregnant with my mother. She took Richard as a two-year-old uh, into her family and brought him up. And Graham, the, the baby, uh, was brought up by the older brother, Tom. So he, Richard was brought up as my mother's older brother, effectively, but was technically her uncle. So technically he was my great uncle, but I always called him Uncle Richard. But the main influence came uh, when, in 1981, when he asked me to drive him to Switzerland in a Mini Cooper, and which he'd bought. And I couldn't understand why he'd bought a Mini because, you know, he could own any car he wanted. He said, it's not a Mini, it's a Cooper S. <laughs> anyway, I could drive this thing, and I drove him to Switzerland in it. And um, so I spent five weeks with him in total uh, in that um, environment. Many of not always in the car, of course, but um, watching Wimbledon and talking and me asking the most inappropriate questions like how much money have you ever made in your life? And what's the worst project you ever did? What's the biggest mistake you made? Oh, I turned down the sound of music. Why was it a mistake? I was on a percentage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I got Richard Burton at his, uh, at his um, vulnerable best when he instead of trying to impress me he just answered my questions and um he uh it, it was a remarkable experience it's a bit like my week with marilyn yeah. and um and he inspired me he inspired me to look at literature again and um because he knew that i i was studying sciences i was at university studying biochemistry and chemistry and he did ask me what the hell i was doing and i said i don't know honestly i don't know and I and I I said, well, I think I'm going to drop out. He said, you will not drop out. You will finish your degree. Make no mistake. And um and so <laughs> he did persuade me to finish my degree, which I did. But I think he also implanted the idea that 
literature was where it was at. And and then when he died in 84, which was three years later, so suddenly, and uh, it broke my heart. And my girlfriend at the time, who was an actress, said, maybe it's time for you to have a go. And so nobody I had a go. Believed. Nobody could have believed at the end. Oh, no, that was War of the Worlds. Nobody, nobody would have believed. Nobody would have believed. You did so well. It's it's obviously a family trait. Um, so, wow, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we're almost out of time, which is incredible. But Because um, we could go on forever and probably will at some point in the future. Yeah. So if anyone wants to know more about Guy Masterson and the things that you've got coming up, obviously we've got the ChristmasCarol.co.uk, I think, website, which occasionally we mention. But where is there a sort of a general spot so people can find out more about you and get in touch? If yes, GuyMasterson.com. Um, which is also linked to my company, theatertoursinternational.com. Um, so either way, you know, you find all my gigs on there and 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 see the, the, the various shows that I'm presenting. You'll also see a list of past shows that I've done uh, or been linked to in some artistic way, um, which is uh, uh, 150 shows, I think, over, crikey, 30 years now at the Edinburgh Festival. Um so yeah, I've been I've been busy as a as a presenter, producer, writer, director. I mean, all things. I've just written my first screenplay, um, yeah. which is which has been optioned, uh, and that is and that is about the trip with Uncle Richard in the in the in the Mini Cooper. Um, and so yeah, I, I'm a jack of all trades. I'm not sure I'm a master of any of them, but um, you know, I, I I think the only way you can survive in this business is to be open to anything which is attached to it and that way you don't have to say i'm only an actor and i'm going to wait until that phone rings at least you say well look i don't know anything about writing i'm going to have a, i'm going to have a go and see if i'm any good at it or i might associate myself with really good writers and see if i can pick things up and then i might have a go myself you know that kind of thing well, so you find I mean, someone called me a polymath once i thought they were being insulted but they were and in the meantime if you'd like to get in touch you can of course as always probably at radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk or i've got my own address now nick at uh, bohemianbritain.com nick at bohemianbritain.com thank you so much guy best of luck with animal farm i shall see you probably tomorrow night or the night after we'll have to have a cheeky beer <laughs> but thank you so much for your time that's guy masterson in dressing rooms of the wilton's music hall i'm Nick Hennigan, this is Resonance 104.4 FM.